Hey everybody, Francesca here reminding you that I will be in Sacramento at the Sack Punchline on Sunday, March 17th at 7 p.m. with none other than Matt Lieb. That's right, we are co-headlining. It'll be super fun. It is St. Patrick's Day, so I guess we're all drinking, maybe? Anyway, get your tickets. There should be a link in this description, and I hope to see you there. If you can blow up this Russian threat, in a way it's ideal because that suggests you need lots and lots and lots of tanks, lots and lots and lots of artillery. Uh, But of course, at the same time, uh, you're never going to have to use them, you know, so you're not actually going to fight or, or, or risk, you know, God forbid, nuclear catastrophe. So what, what you get out of this is, is what I have to say, I think a lot of the generals are really about, which is bigger budgets. Come in right this way. Can I offer you a hot glass of oat milk? Mmm, yes, it does curdle weird, doesn't it? But it's better than almond, probably. Welcome. I don't know who I am today, but I am Francesca Fiorentini every other day. This is the Bituation Room Podcast. You're you're here, you're listening, you've pressed play. There's no turning back. Go with it. Uh, we've got such a good show today. We are breaking down the Ukraine-Russia-United States kerfuffle. That's what I'm going to call it. It's going to be the world kerfuffle three, um, not a war. I'm anti-war, so I'm pro-kerfuffle. I'm actually not pro-kerfuffle. It's at much messier, far more weapons contractors. It's, um, it's like a World War III, but just with chickens. That's what I imagine a kerfuffle is. Uh, but no, we're going to be breaking it down. Uh, and, uh, we will get serious about it because, uh, my guest is Anatole Levin, who's a researcher at the Quincy Institute for responsible statecraft. That's how, you know, they mean business. Very excited to have him on, um, to school us to, to explain what the hell is going on. Is there going to be a war? Uh, when, why, why not? Um, can we dissolve NATO? Can can Putin go away? When will he be satisfied? Um, also with me on the program is comedian Corinda Dobbins, who not only has a new special out that everyone should go by, but was one of the first guests who was ever on the Bituation Room back in like 2018. I was moving out of my house at the time. It was echoey as shit. And she was there and it was super fun. NATO was also on that show. So I think we were talking about Kanye and, you know, four years later, still a thing, still having a mental breakdown. Poor guy. Um, I mean, poor us. But anyway, if you are here listening as a podcast, hey, why don't you give this podcast five stars? That's just, you know, shows that you love the program and that you support the scrappy little labor of love that this is. And if you're here on YouTube, what up? Make sure to like and subscribe right now. What are you doing? It's good content. It's weekly. We don't feed the algorithm like slaves. It's quality over quantity. But you're here as well as on Twitch. What is up? Thank you so much for being here, for subscribing. So you don't have to watch like the very long ads. Very long. Every time. It's like I know Doritos are good. 
You don't have to tell me. Now I just want Doritos. I guess that was the point of the ad. By the way, this show is ad-free. That is right. Uh, I have uh, not yet um, wrangled a sort of a, a, you know, like a, like a mismatching fruit company. Mismatching fruit. Um, I have not wrangled uh, any meal kit programs to sponsor this show. But if I did, it'd be only the meal kits that don't like bloat you because nightshades. Am I right? Anyone? Hell yeah. One person. Um, but anyway, th- this is supported by you guys. It is an independent project. It is 100 supported, 100% supported by y'all. That's why we have a Patreon. Patreon.com slash Bituation Room is where you go to show the show a little bit of love. Kick us five bucks a month if you can. And the great thing about this is that it it gives you access to bonus material every single goddamn week. That is right. We do a bonus story every single week, me and the comic. And this week, oh, yeah, we're talking about Ram Ranch. That's right. Oh, you don't want you don't know what Ram Ranch is. Oh, you better become a fucking patron because you're going to want this story. It's my favorite story, maybe of the year. All right. Ram Ranch Resistance, the best part to come out of the entire Ottawa truckers bullshit has been the Ram Ranch Resistance. If you don't know, you got to stick around to find out. Corinda and I are going to break it down and talk about it and listen to a little bit of uh, Ram Ranch, uh, the, the, the viral hit having a little renaissance right now. So super excited about that. Um, also, guys, tell your friends in Brooklyn to get their asses out of the door, into the cold, past all the nasty snow and all the pieces that don't melt and all are gross. And you're like, I wonder what, who's under there. You know what I mean? Tell them to come out to our live show on Thursday, March 10th at the Bell House in Brooklyn. Sam Cedar's going to be there. Council member Tiffany Caban, Matt Lieb, comedian and life partner will be there. It's going to be so much fun. Um, just get your butts out there. And if you can't make it, Remember, this is a virtual show as well, and you got to get tickets for it. If you're a patron, you get those tickets for free. That's another perk, one of the many perks of becoming a patron. But if you can't be there, hey, support the show, uh, $10 for a, a virtual ticket, 20 bucks to be there in person with me and the gang. Everyone's going to be safe, max card checked, all that, you know, masks when you're not drinking copious amounts of whiskey and all that. So, yeah, really, 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 really looking forward to seeing you guys. And, um, finally, if you don't fuck with Twitch, maybe you should on Wednesdays because I host a show called the Twitchuation Room, no relation to this podcast, but that's for TYT's Twitch channel, uh, twitch.tyt, the Twitchuation Room every Wednesday, one to three Pacific. Um, it's super fun. It's mostly me torturing my cat very slowly with facts. No, I'm. It's just me. My cat sometimes is there, but it's me yammering, talking, doing the damn thing. We got to get this show going because, my God, it is. Look at the time. You know, we I'm going nowhere. Literally got to walk around the neighborhood so my legs don't atrophy. Um, but why don't we get into it, y'all? So good to have you here. What are you bitching about on this fine Sunday? 
Okay, I got two quick things. One, not as important as the second one, but still very important. Undercovered, and I'm very fascinated by it. Um, Hey, Russian figure skating coaches, stop starving and pumping your skaters full of drugs, okay? They are children. This is bad. I used to like skating. Oksana Bayul, who could forget? You used to be good. But now I'm like, maybe they were giving her drugs to make her so small and like make her bangs so 80s. Because I did watch the Olympics this last week and uh, the Russian figure skaters won first first and second. What are those? Gold and silver. I don't see medals. I don't judge based on precious metal values. But anyway, gold and silver, they were super unhappy about it. Come to find out that like, there's been a horrible, corrupt, like evil woman at the helm of Russian figure skating. Who's been making skaters uh, uh, skate when their backs are broken, when they're uh, completely injured. And each one of the like young man or woman that she coaches, they end up retiring after like two years and it's really fucking scary. Um, they're, they're just like completely worn out. And by the age of like 17, anyway, can we start a war over that? That's my Russia gate. Yeah. Take that mad out. Okay, um, the second thing that I am bitching about, and this is a little more substantive, is this week, I did cover this a little bit on TYT, if you watch me there, um, centrist Democrats uh, have a new plan. Ooh, ooh, is it to defeat Republicans in swing states and make sure they hold on to their majority in Congress? <gasps> no, sadly not. No, instead, they're creating a super PAC, and that super PAC is designed to defeat progressives who want to primary them in deep blue districts. Deep blue means securely blue, means it probably won't go to a Republican. And all they're doing is raising a bunch of corporate money in order to uh, protect the status quo. So here's Hakeem Jeffries, sort of the next in line to uh, the Nancy Pelosi speakership throne. And, uh, Top Democrats unveil plan to beat back progressive rebellion. This is according to the Rolling the Rolling Stone magazine. Rolling Stone magazine. Um, their pack is called Team Blue, which is ironic because it feels like they're playing for Team Red on this one. The lawmakers united in an effort to provide resources to the increasing number of House Democrats who face primary challenges, in particular from the left. That circumstance faces the five incumbents who will receive endorsements on Wednesday. Representative Chantel Brown. Oh, I remember Chantel. Remember the the woman who defeated Nina Turner narrowly after receiving tons of dark money and money from pro-Israel groups? Danny Davis, Carolyn Maloney, Don Donald Payne Jr., and Dina Titus of Nevada. Davis and Maloney face opponents backed by Justice Democrats. Brown faces a rematch from Bernie Sanders ally Nina Turner who had the support of the left-wing group during a special election to fill the seat last year. Uh, I I wouldn't, like, I love Justice Dems. I don't know if I would call them left-wing. They're progressive. They're, you know. That being said, guys, in this same week, in the same breath, this, basically the same cohort 
of centrist corporate Dems then went to Axios and were like, hey, hey, um, could you run an article about how like the squad sucks? And, and Axios was like, hell yeah. So squad politics backfire headline in Axios this week. And within that, who did they quote? Ah, Representative Josh Gottheimer of New York, who uh, is part of that new pack designed to defeat progressives in Congress. Set them up and knock them down. Crazy PR, thanks to the corporate media. Here's what I'll say. I'm so mad that some of the biggest enemies of real change are other Democrats, but it also makes sense. And what they want from us is to not care. They want us to say it's all the same. It's all corporate backed money. And a lot of us should have reason to basically wash our hands of the entire political process. However, that's exactly what not just Republicans, but what Democrats want. They're, they want to say, quiet down children who can never have children because, you know, of rising sea levels and an unaffordable cost of living and lack of health care, lack of housing. We got it from here. What is it? Oh, mostly stocks. I mean, I got a lot of stocks, but we got it. And the future. What's your future? Oh, I'll be in Elysium. In, uh, I'll be in the Mars colony with Pelosi and all the Manolo Blahniks. They have their own spaceship. But anyway, just sit down, pipe down. And I'm asking you guys who listen to this show to do the fucking opposite. Whether you're in these states, whether you have a little bit of money to give and donate, please support Justice Democrats and the progressives running for Congress against do-nothing centrist status quo Democrats, Keena Collins in Illinois, uh, Rana Abdelhamid in New York, Summer Lee in Pennsylvania, Odessa Kelly in Tennessee, Jessica Cisneros in Texas. Early voting's already underway. Remember, Henry Cuellar had the FBI raid his goddamn home, and yet the establishment of the Democrats is still not throwing him under the bus because they're like, mm, we'd rather have that than Medicare for all. And Greg Kassar of Texas is uh, 35th district. So follow these people, donate to them. If you can make calls for them, calls are kind of fun. Like I, I advocate for calls. I enjoy doing calls. I don't like text banking cause I have like RSI pain, but I love you just sit there and then you like, you know, play a phone game or uh, in my case, put a bunch of things in a shopping cart online, but never check out. And um, you know, you make phone calls and you fucking get progressives in office so we can uh, prevent the apocalypse. Okay. That is what I'm bitching about. We're coming for your asses. You're not gonna, you are not going to do this to us again and again and a goddamn again. We're the only ones who learned the lesson from 2016. You guys want to slow walk right back into fascism's mouth. And I have something to say about it. I've got something to say about it. My guest is a stand-up comedian, writer, and actor. Bitch Magazine said she's one of six hilarious female comics you don't know yet but should. And her album, Black and Blue, is out right now. Please welcome Corinda Dobbins. Hey. Hey. (laughs) How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. Let's just um, get a little glimpse for the podcast listeners. Maybe you can't see this, but Ooh. Corinda looking really nice in her, in her, what is this, like a le- uh, velvet? Yeah, it's like a velvet uh, jacket 
it's it's really you know I'm from Detroit. It's really sort of my nod to Marvin Gaye, his classic album cover. <laughs> What's going on? Yes. Yeah, I had to pop my collar a little bit on that one. Yes. The lighting <laughs> on your face. We're talking about her her uh, the art for her album, her special cover, Black and Blue, or her album. Right? It's it's not filmed. We can't. Yes, yeah, just. We hear. we did we did film it, but we're not releasing it like as a, you know, we're just giving people little clips. But sure. right now it's just an album. Okay, amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, Black and blue, everybody get that album. We'll plug it at the end as well. But Corinda, welcome to the show. What are you bitching about today? You know, Francesca, I watched a documentary last night, and I probably shouldn't have. Uh, I probably should have stopped watching documentaries a long time yeah, ago. Yeah, totally. It only makes me angry. Makes my <laughs> blood pressure grow up. But I watched uh, Downfall, oh. uh, the case against Boeing, oh. and um, it's bad. I, uh, I can't watch that shit. I always, like, <laughs> I when I'm flying now, I do check what, like, if it's a 7, 6. 37 max. 737 max. So tell me, um, they're, like, they took every precaution, did they not? <laughs> They absolutely did not take any precautions. You know, what happened is, you know, when Boeing got, um, you know, merged with McDonnell Douglas, uh, you know, the the quality that they had been known for sort of went out the window because they were like, we want to focus on Wall Street and stockholder returns. And so people who were raising their hands about quality stuff, you know, they got fired or they got, you know, pushed out the door. And so when they wanted to compete with another airline, so they, they redid the 737, they put these huge um, engines on it. And they also put a software system on there that they didn't want to train people how to use because when you retrain pilots, then that means the FAA has to get involved. And they didn't want to do that. So oh they were like, God. we're putting the system in, but we ain't going to tell y'all how to use it. <laughs> oh, my God. Because... Not because they thought there was a low chance of them using it or it kicking in, but because they just didn't want to, like, take the time to file with the FAA. And retrain pilots, yeah. Fuck. And so what happened was Lions Air, which was the first plane that crashed, they were begging Boeing to train them on this MCAS system. They were like, hey, don't you think we need training? And they were like, absolutely not. They said it in writing. They were like, we absolutely will not retrain you. They just put like a little, like little, <laughs> a little uh, pin of the wings on them. Like, here you go. Yeah, You're a great of, pilot. They didn't, you got they, it. They didn't train them. And so when it crashed, Boeing knew why. But they sent their lobbyists out to, to say stuff like, oh, you know, these third world pilots, are they really trained? <laughs> I was like... First, you're not going to train them, and then you're going to blame them for not being trained. Damn, you are going to rely that's on racism. So... But that's so real. Every time a flight crashes that's not, like, in the American. U.S. or Europe, yeah, that it's like, well, those people, yeah, doesn't matter. Like, it, like it, we're like the ni- it's like 1962 for some reason, and it got hijacked from some, like, rebel group. You're like, what the fuck? <laughs> no. Yeah, so it, it's, it was bad. So I think I think the part that really, really upset me was that after the Lions Air one crashed, right? FAA did this test that basically said this plane is gonna keep crashing. 
over its lifetime. The 737 MAX is going to crash a minimum of, I think they said 15 planes are probably going to crash. Oh, my God. Over the lifetime of this plane. Which will be five years. (laughs) (laughs) Right. What? No. Yeah. Planes usually fly for what? 30 years, 25 years. Now, is this one plane or the entire fleet was probably going to have. They're saying the entire fleet was going to basically have 15 more crashes. Jesus Christ. And so at that point, Boeing and the FAA had the opportunity to ground the planes and say, hey, we ran this test. And this is what we're looking at. But they didn't. So. That's why it's really, really, really a tragedy because the Ethiopian Airlines plane crash didn't have to happen. Yeah. They they had the information to 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 ground these planes. Had they trained they them at that it. point or no? They had trained them, but this is the tricky part. The Ethiopian airline pilots did what Boeing said to do and they still crashed. Fuck. Yo, can I just say the scariest part of this and the thing that like I like keeps me up? a little bit like every once in a while I'll think about it like three in the morning go like (gasps) because the flight path of that second flight at the very end like maybe the last hour or something was like up and down and up and down and it's just these pilots fighting with the fucking machine of the plane and imagining being a passenger like first of all I would have died in the first 15 minutes because I would have a heart attack that was just been done (laughs) but like that they were thinking they could survive and then it was pulling them down. But that's how they knew that it was Boeing software because the, the first plane was the exact same thing. It was up, down, up, down because the pilots were fighting the software and the software was trying to kill them and they were trying to save themselves. And the software was like, no, you're going to die. <laughs> <laughs> and then the pilots were like, we don't want to. Uh, uh, this is, the, yeah, no, that's, and like, what's going to happen? No where one, did it lead it? Like, where, what's the ba- ball bouncing? Like, what's happening now? Well, you know, of course, uh, the DOJ under Trump said, oh, management wasn't responsible, even though during the documentary, we find out that they knew everything. Uh, so they said they weren't responsible and they made them pay a fine. And what the families are saying is that, um, you know, we're going to sue you because somebody needs to be accountable. Somebody needs to go to jail because you guys knew and you let pilots continue to fly these planes, even though you wouldn't train them. Um, or there's no off switch. Just fucking get an off switch. It was a, anyway, the whole thing. It's. Uh... But but also when they made them pay the fine, most of the uh, uh, money went to. The airlines who had to ground the planes, they wanted to sort of reimburse them. They got more money than the families got. People who actually died. Jesus. Okay. So to continue with this theme, our fun segment at the end is going to be way more fun than this. But we're going to talk about uh, the new no-fly list and all of the stank behavior the passengers who are lucky enough to reach their destination and are not on a 767 <laughs> um, <laughs> are exhibiting, uh, whether it's anti-mask shit, whether it's having too much to drink, all the reasons mm-hmm. that actually now we can't get a drink on a flight when there's a little bit of turbulence because, you know, I need one when I'm like, oh, my God. Um, but Corinne and I are going to break down whether we would wh- what our thoughts are on a no-fly list and who would be on that list and who would not be on that list. So you got to stay tuned for that fun segment after the interview. Um, but we have to get into this week, Corinda. Yeah. Um, so much happened. 
Uh, a few of the stories that I've been following. Uh, this was the week where the crown spoilers continued as Queen Elizabeth, who is 96, tested positive for coronavirus. Now she's vaccinated. She's boosted. But she was also most likely infected by her son and heir to the throne, Prince Charles, who tested positive a week earlier. Uh, luckily, if she does die, it wouldn't be the first murder of a family member he was responsible for. <laughs> oh, and- I think he you, you think he did that on purpose. He's like, hey, mom, come <laughs> over. <laughs> Hello. Morning, love. Um, Let me kiss you on the cheek. Mm-hmm. Very, very. Slobberly. Uh huh. Oh yeah. I mean, he's already going to be crowned, and his his uh, his illegal living in sin wife Camilla will be crowned. Yeah, <laughs> they're going to be crowned very soon. But still, I guess he couldn't have mummy watching he's over her. Trying to speed that up. He, he's, he's like, he's like, I've waited too long. He's like, I don't like the ceremony you're planning. Let me step in. Because didn't her mom die at like 103 or something? So she's probably got at least five or six more years. And he's like, I can't wait that long. <laughs> He's like, I'm about to die. Um, A judge in Minneapolis sentenced Kim Potter, former police officer and convicted murderer of Dante Wright, to less than two years in prison. Because according to the judge, we must, quote, empathize with the officer. Yeah, guys, come on. Put yourself in that cop's position. You're a 26-year veteran. You don't know the difference between your gun and your taser, and you still had the job for 26 years. Do you know how many years of pretending that is? That's so hard. Um, three. But unfortunately, I, I, you know, I expected that. Actually, she probably got more time than I thought they were going to give her. I thought she was going to get like uh, 24 hours or something. <laughs> like time served, gun, done, goodbye, <laughs> gun. Good Freudian slip there. Um, three San Francisco school board members were successfully recalled, and the far right and centrists of the nation are taking it as a referendum on so-called wokeism or wokeis or wokestafarianism, when actually it was just rich parents from Pleasanton partnering with venture capitalists and charter school advocates to exploit pandemic parental frustrations to continue privatizing public schools. <gasps> Congrats, yuppies. And finally, a new Gallup poll finds that 7.1% of Americans, which is a record, identify as LGBTQ+, while 92.9% of Americans are cowards. <laughs> cowards, I say. For everything else, this is The Week Where. So this was the week where <clears throat> Tucker Carlson, an only man who thinks of the green M&M while making love to his wife, dedicated a 12-minute rant. This is primetime television on the most watched network somehow in the world to a new book about Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Uh, this is an insane rant. It is unhinged, but also it's kind of his like, rom-com like i think this is his meet cute for aoc when they fall in love because he's clearly got a thing for her let's watch but we did understand the next line the degradations of womanhood are personal to her well that's certainly true no one has done more personally to degrade american womanhood than sandy cortez has she is living proof that 60 years of feminist liberation did not work sandy cortez is not empowered she's neurotic and silly She is far more frivolous than any 1950s housewife ever was. June Cleaver was a more serious person. At least she made dinner. 
But the funniest of all was hearing Sandy Cortez describe herself as a woman of color. She often does. No one ever dares to challenge that description, but every honest person knows it is hilariously absurd. There is no place on earth outside of American colleges and newsrooms where Sandy Cortez would be recognized as a, quote, woman of color, because she's not. She's a rich, entitled white lady. She's the pampered, obnoxious ski bunny in the matching snowsuit who tells you to pull up your mask while you're standing in the lift line at Jackson Hole. They're all the same. doesn't matter what shade they are. It really is if she were exhausted and wanting to talk. I'm alone today, she says pointedly at the camera. I'm alone today, Ocasio-Cortez says pointedly at the camera. Is it just us or does that sound like an invitation to a booty call? Maybe one step from what are you wearing? Either way, it's a little strange. It's definitely oversharing. <laughs> wow. I think it's just you, bro. It is just you who thinks you know, that that is a booty call. I could have gone my whole life without hearing Tucker Carlson say the words booty call. <laughs> uh, it's, it's very disturbing. Uh, I'm probably going to have nightmares about it. Uh, he definitely has a thing for AOC. I, I mean, it's it's a little thirsty. That that look is, is not a good look for you, Tucker. Um, this is like... Talking about ski lifts and bunnies and um, that was, <laughs> June Cleaver. That's that was the, a lot. That was a, there was so, let's take it by parts. Uh, the, the ski lift line, arguably, the most bizarre line. Because... He was like, the lady who tells you to pull up your mask in a ski line at Jackson Hole waiting for the lift. Like, did that happen to you? I'm just like, who knows that? I'm like, <laughs> I don't even know what you're talking Are about. Are you just describing your winter vacation, bro? Because I think that's exactly what happened to you. So there's that. There's a fact that, okay, you know that he calls her Sandy to just like as a sign of disrespect yeah. Maybe I I can't even imagine like I, I'm not even sure if maybe one point in her life she was ever called Sandy doesn't matter they dug it up from like college when uh, she was also dancing remember that whole video it was like look at AOC dancing and having fun mm, need to be alone <laughs> I wonder if his wife is at home like he's talking about AOC again he probably uh, he does this in his whispers sleep. about her in his sleep yeah she's like. Ah, uh, here we go again. You're talking about AOC. First of all, Corinda, tell me they don't role play as AOC. Like, tell me she's not like, I want socialism. Yes. Defund <laughs> the police. Like, they, they fucking role play. I know it's gross, but his wife puts on all green, writes MNM, puts on some white high heeled boots, and is Alexandria Ocasio Cortez. And it's fucking weird. We all know it's weird. Um, and they're like in their bedroom, like pretending they're standing in a standing in a bread line or something. Yeah, like, they yeah, like feel me, some sort of oppression. Yeah, let me let me scooch up closer to you, honey. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, wow, this this socialized medicine, it's so tough. Will you be my socialist doctor? Ooh, <laughs> like that's just the lamest role play. Um, that's bad. So, okay, feminist liberation was wrong. Like. Just insane misogyny. The idea that a congresswoman, because of who she is, because she like he doesn't like that he go, she goes live on Instagram and gives us insight into her life. He doesn't like that this book talked about it. Um, that the women's rights movement was all for nothing. And um, you know, uh, and he got that little dig in there, but like 
she probably doesn't cook. I'm just like, wow. Yeah, exactly. At least June she, Cleaver had a dinner ready. First of all, fuck you, resoundingly. So fuck you, Tucker Carlson. Period. That's it. There is in no world is what you're doing, okay? And there was someone who wanted to respond to it. We could take it part by part because, uh, you know, the she, she might be <laughs> she might not have dinner ready, which, by the way, she definitely cooks because she's Instagram live her cooking. Um, exactly. But she's also the queen of dunking on pretty much any troll who comes at her, including Tucker Carlson. So her first tweet in response was, this is the type of stuff you say when your name starts with P and ends with Dejo, as in <laughs> Pendejo. <laughs> um, and then she goes, remember when the right wing had a meltdown when I suggested they exhibit obsessive impulses about young women, around young women? Well, now Tucker Carlson is wishing for this on national TV. You're a creep, bro. If you're this easy with sexual harassment on air, how are you treating your staff? Bingo. Yeah. I'm sure. His staff is probably like, we get this every day. Like, this is... He <laughs> always is, is talks about booty call. Like, would you like to make a booty call? What does he know about booty call? Oh, God. Is, I... he, listen, is he secretly listening to rap from the 80s? When he goes to bed. <laughs> I don't even feel like that was in any songs. Like booty. I don't know. I feel like. No, it's, it's, I don't. It, it was right. in a movie, I think. Sure. The movie, booty the call. movie maybe, booty maybe call. Maybe that, maybe that's his favorite movie. Maybe that's his favorite film. Yeah. Can you blame him? Um, <laughs> she goes on. She says, any man that talks like this will treat any woman like this. Doesn't matter if you're Republican, Democrat or neither. This is clearly not a safe person to leave alone with women. Once again, the existence of a wife or daughters doesn't make a man good. And this one is Basuda emoji with a little trash can. I love her so much. Um, and then she keeps going. I genuinely want to know why Tucker Carlson is allowed to allowed slash paid to engage in clear targeted libelous harassment that endangers people and drives them drives so many violent threats that people have to fundraise for their own safety. Why should they have to pay for this harassment? Make, uh, make it make sense. It's not within the realm of political commentary. It's not just me. He regularly targets people of color that do not have access to resources for protection. Once he gets fantasizing about, quote, booty calls of women on national TV, I cease to see the political value outside of incitement. Yeah. You put your finger I mean, she's, on it. She's absolutely right. But it's interesting that uh, Turco Carlson, like, he never has any smoke for anybody who really needs it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Not. Like he doesn't have anything to say about any political discourse that has any meaningful. Mm. Uh, it is anything. 100% just, culture war. He's been it's just women yeah. and culture wars and people who he knows, like uh, AOC says, doesn't have the resources to, you know, pay all this money for all the trolls that are going to come at them once he, digs into them on his show 100 and and the real thing is we've normalized his insanity and it is actually really funny because he does have a thing for both her and the green m&m and mm -hmm. Minnie mouse or whatever other cartoon but like it is nice to hear and it's fucking ridiculous that aoc has to be the one to say it and it's not like coming out of like nancy pelosi's mouth who you know springs into action every time you know, someone says anything that might be anti-Israel, right? Or supposedly, um, supposedly anti-Semitic. But for this, she gets hung out to dry. But it's like that 
it's nice to have someone just remind us like this is not okay in let's not normalize this circus. But the real answer is it is for incitement. I mean, it's the same thing as Janine Pirro going, get a gun, get one now because Sharia law. I mean, like that's what she does. Yeah, That's all she does. And it's the whole, it's the same exact shit. And Murdoch is the one backing it. And they love but it. There's never, there's never any consequences uh, for these people, whatever they say, whatever they do, and whatever their followers do uh, in response to what they say. Yeah. They're always like, you know, when people sue them, Fox News goes into court and says stuff like, uh, we are not responsible for you believing what Tucker Carlson has to say. Everybody knows he's stupid. Like that's right, their it's entertainment. in court. It's entertainment. I'm doing it for entertainment value. It's television. You should, you should know better. Like that's their defense. Which didn't hold court. up against Alex Jones when he was sued by the family members right. of the Newtown massacre. Rightfully so. And it was like, nah, bro, yeah. you can't just be like, I'm doing a bit here. Yeah. You've literally leaked people's addresses You've caused them to be leaked and you're saying that they fake the deaths of their children. So nah, Mm -hmm. you can't do that. The real thing for me is we actually need to clamp down on mainstream media outlets in terms of the, the amount of monopolies that they control. The fact that, you know, that Fox News and News Corp is allowed to get bigger and bigger and bigger and swallow up more and more channels, local stations, radio stations, network, cable stations. From here across the pond. And I think, you know, what we saw in Canada was the result of that trickling in of Fox Reaching News right wing media. Yeah. yeah. 100%. But I thought I thought we had laws against that monopolies. And like you couldn't have monopolies in media markets. But I. Uh, you they, after the like after the 94th Telecommunications Act, basically, when like sort of Clinton neo They wiped that out? Yeah, they basically completely let down all the guardrails um, mm. and and allowed folks to continue to mo- monopolize. Um, in addition, I mean, it's just like, at what point are we going to say we need to fucking nip this in the bud that this is not, this cannot be news? Um, well, if, some, if someone from China or any brown or black country comes over and start to monopolize, we will change those laws immediately. <laughs> like they will be struck down and reversed, and they're gonna be like, "No, right, this can't happen." We need that, that Chinese billionaires to buy need, our media. We always need outside boogeymen to come in, and then we're all like, "Oh, no, no." Mm-mm. Yeah, we, we believe can't. in small channels <laughs> and like democratizing the radio waves and print newspaper. Uh, yeah. So the little guys like Rupert Murdoch. So what you're saying is help us, China. Yeah. Or, you know, anybody, any, any brown or black company that can come in and, and just <laughs> yeah. start taking over stuff. They hate that. Absolutely. And laws start to change after that. You know, we saw that in California with Reagan with the guns. Like, they were all pro-gun until the Panthers started to carry them. And then Reagan was like, oh, no, we won't have We're going to need to do something about that. <laughs> we're going to change that law right now. Exactly. Um, we got to move on to our next story. This was also the week where one of Joe Biden's biggest successes in his first year as president uh, did a SpaceX rocket-style implosion. The child tax credit, which is part of the American Rescue Plan, had successfully lifted 5 million children out of poverty, and after last month, when those payments ended, we're pretty much back where we started from. So this is from 
The Center on Poverty and Social Policy at Columbia University said that the child poverty rate rose from 12% in December 2021 to 17% last month, an approximately 41% increase. The study found that an additional 3.7 million children are now in poverty relative to the end of December, with Black and Latino children seeing the biggest percentage point increases. Um, the White House, again, for those who don't remember, the last couple months, the White House was unable to secure an extension of, of the program, the child tax credit, i.e. did not fucking fight for it, amid a disagreement over its broader economic proposal with Senator Joe Manchin the third. Don't forget that third. <laughs> who raised multiple objections to the child benefit and said it was discouraging parents from working. Virtually all Republicans have also opposed Biden's expanded tax credit, child tax credit, and Washington has shifted away from pandemic spending as lawmakers seek to curb the worst inflationary spike in four decades. Why do they always get to say that? What, what, what proof do they have that this discourages parents from wanting to work? What are you basing that on? Is there is there a study? Is there a survey? Is there, is there anything concrete that you can show us? No, it is straight up class warfare. It is a rich person imagining that poor people, poor people spe- don't want to work. Yes. And, and people of color are lazy and don't want to work and that they should have, you know, the sort of rumble in their tummy because then they've got the hunger to go out and, you know, uh, mow my lawn for me. And watch my kids for me and fucking flip my burgers for me and all the other things. It is utter elitism. Why why is Joe Manchin a Democrat? Because he's in West Virginia. And. But run as a Republican. Right. Yeah. There's no reason for you and cinema to be roadblocks to all the things that Biden promised us during his uh, run up to the White House. It's like. Why are you there? We don't. When Republicans run, there's no Republican like you know what? Hey, <laughs> uh, uh, I don't want I don't want anything to do with your agenda. Like, yeah, me and this gal over here don't. Like nobody was blocking Trump from doing anything. No. So why do we always have Democrats who are like, you know what? <laughs> you want to move some stuff through Congress? I'm not here for it. Yeah, <laughs> I will be a complete human shield on any progress. Yes. Uh, yes. And, you know, Manchin is one thing in West Virginia, and I know there's amazing, I know West Virginia Can't Wait is a great grassroots organization. There's a lot of good folks doing some grassroots, like deep grassroots building in there in that state. But it is, you know, it is a swing state and it de- tends mm-hmm. to go red. But then you've got fucking cinema. And Kirsten Cinema, my God, is polling at like 8% among Democrats. <laughs> like they fucking hate her ass in Arizona. And she's still the one curtsying and like putting her little thumb down when it comes to $15 minimum wage. She's still the one who's like, doesn't want to supposedly raise the deficit, even though again, all the build back better stuff, including the child tax credit that was all paid for. We were going to raise, we were going to minimally raise taxes on insanely wealthy people, but no, we can't do that. So 3.7 million children have to live in poverty. Um, and, of course, progressives are going to get blamed for it. So again, I mentioned that Axios article earlier in the show and how the squad's politics are backfiring. Remember the squad who is 
straight up out in front on this Build Back Better plan. They were like, we do want this. We, In fact, we want to fight for all of it. We're going to make sure mm-hmm. it all gets passed. We want the home care. We want the climate bill stuff. We want everything. And I think Representative Cori Bush had a really good um, tweet on this where she basically like she she brings up the the squad politics has failed article and she writes in case you hadn't caught on by now every time there's a media push blaming democrats excuse me blaming progressives there's something conservative democrats are trying to cover up this time it's that they sent four million kids into poverty because they killed the child tax credit don't get distracted and like i love I fucking love Corey Bush. I, I love, love that her. shit. <laughs> yeah. I love her. Like she is not here for the BS. Like ever. Um, do not try to. Uh, I, I I just don't understand the the, the centrist Democrats. I really don't. Um, you have a progressive part of your party uh, pushing for things that they got elected to do, and you're trying to paint them as the bad guy. I'm like, whenever Republicans push their party right. There's no pushback for that. They're not like, oh, we don't want that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they go more right. The Democrats never go more left. No. <laughs> They're like, no, we don't, we don't, we don't want to be doing, you know, stuff that we said that we were going to do. <laughs> totally. Say what you Why? want about Republicans. At least they listen to the base. At least they know where the energy is. Yeah, that energy is in fascism. I fucking hate that part of it. But the Democrats have no idea where the energy is. People you know, people respond to folks like Cori Bush and AOC for a reason. They're speaking to the issues that they care about. And Cori Bush exemplifies right there that she's not afraid to. She didn't name names, but she came very close, basically saying, look, conservative Democrats have a lot to hide. They fucked up. You know what I mean? And and like, so stop trying to like put the blame on us. I can throw it right back on you. I'm not going to sit here and take it. I mean, I hope all those progressives that are running just wipe the slate with these people like i hope they raise all the money i mean i know they can't match the corporate money but i hope that people small donations will just help them get rid of all these centrist democrats and then the democrats will be like oh this is what the people want yeah this is what we want oh i should go retire in one of my homes (laughs) i'll go do that um just for some context uh in the city that never sleeps on subway cars, uh, former police captain turned mayor Eric Adams is ensuring that his police are doing real tough anti-crime work, just cracking down on everything. Heinous acts like stealing $1,800 worth of Pampers. baby formula, Pampers, diapers. Yeah, that's like, the, there's some lotion in there, too. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's Mucinex. That oh yeah for a cold maybe there's some yeah. uh, eye drops in there yeah I mean that's some hardcore uh, detective work right well, there. well that's like meth I don't know if you knew this but when you mix baby formula with like um common household items like it's a recreational you can, like, drug you, you can like sniff it and um okay yeah exactly I'm sure that's what otherwise you, like put it on you put it on the stove and then like the the fumes you just yep you're like oh yeah breast milk like what. <laughs> Like, why else would they pose so hard next to that if they weren't sure? I mean, sure? they were stunting. <laughs> they were like, um, I'm like it's Pampers and formula and like Tide or something. Like I don't know what else. This image, this is, if you want to fucking understand anything about late stage capitalism, this image, an over-policed population that needs basic goods 
cannot get them met, cannot afford them, shit that should be free from clinics that should be free and doctors that should to access them should be free. And then a bunch of tough ass pieces of shit thinking that they're hard because they arrested this person. And then who this this parent who dared buy their kid for lift. Yeah. And I mean, that's it. It's just it's upsetting. Now, the NYPD, to their credit, took that tweet down. But screenshots are worth a thousand words and are forever. Once you put anything, it's it's forever. Once you post it, <laughs> I know. Don't I know back. it? I had. I mean, I've had some really just dud tweets. You know, so I don't tweet because I'm like, I don't, I don't get any kind of following on Twitter. It's, it, it, you know, they kind of want you to be a little acerbic and like real kind of nasty on Twitter. I, I think. know. <laughs> They like you dragging people. Exactly. I don't want to cancel that many people. I only want to cancel a couple and I just can't, you know, like there, I can't be that loud about it. Cause then it's like, then it's just not on brand. My brand is chill. Um, (laughs) Lay back. We'll lay back. All right. Well, on that fun note, we got to move to talk of war with, uh, (laughs) um, with, why am I blanking on my, with Anatole (laughs) Levin. I'm so sorry, Anatole. Anatole Levin, this was a pre-recorded interview, so Corinda and I are going to duck out, but we will be back talking about who we would put on a no-fly list, or if there should be a no-fly list. Uh, a no-fly list for white people? What? Uh, but for now, please enjoy this interview um, with Anatole Levin, all about what's going on in Ukraine and the U.S.'s involvement in it. Joining us for the sitch to break down everything that's going on in Russia and Ukraine and the United States and who's got it right and who has got it wrong, who clicked on the wrong Google ad, uh, is a senior research fellow on Russia and Europe at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. Uh, He's the author of several books, including Ukraine and Russia, A Fraternal Rivalry, and the more recent Climate Change and the Nation State out with Oxford University Press. Please welcome Anatole Levin. Hello. Hello. Thank you for joining me. Glad to be here. Oh, my God. I've enjoyed your writing and interviews because you're the only one who I think makes me feel a little more sane and you zoom out. Um, But to start with, when it comes to all this war talk and the media very excited about all the war things and all the updates, um, let's zoom in a little bit and talk about what's going on this weekend. Um, Russia seems to be sending more troops to the border with Ukraine. They're going to conduct military exercises. There's talk of false flag operations. There was a little bit of a skirmish, uh, I believe, between uh, separatist forces, Russian separatist forces and U- the Ukrainian military. Are we in a different place, Anatole, than we were a couple of weeks ago? No, I don't think so. And I mean, I used to be a journalist myself. So, you know, as I was told when I very first became a journalist by an older colleague, you know, you don't get headlines by playing down the news. <laughs> and danger. Um, I mean, look, the threat of war is there. The threat of a Russian invasion is there, undoubtedly. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, the Russians continue to say that they're not going to invade. And uh, the Russian foreign minister has said that he is going to meet with Tony Blinken again next week to talk about things. Uh, And the uh, US side has indicated that on a couple of points, there's, you know, room for some flexibility or compromise. So, I mean, there's no doubt about it. Russia is using the threat of war 
uh, as a way of trying to get concessions from the West. But I still think on balance that for the moment, uh, the point is, you know, to use this as a lever. Uh, mm. I don't think that um, that Russia has actually, or the Russian government has definitely made up its mind to invade. Right. But as I say, you, you know, I, I, I think if they don't get what they would regard as, you know, a reasonable compromise, uh, then I think that danger is still very much there. Okay, yeah, that, yes. And let's talk about what that reasonable compromise is. But first, right now, is there any world in which, you know, Russia is trying to sort of bait? I mean, this is what I, I you know, when you hear even Biden saying something like a false flag operation, does it feel like he's saying there's going to be bait for us to try to take? Uh, is Putin trying to um, egg either the Ukrainian military or I guess some of the NATO and or American forces into kind of like firing the first shot, so to speak? Well, NATO's not going to make shot, fire the first shot. Uh, I mean, they've made that clear again and again. You know, they've even withdrawn their military observers from the Donbass, which, by the way, means that we can't really say what what's going on there. Mm. You know, we've evacuated our diplomats from Kiev. Uh, no, I mean, NATO's not going to go to war, and Russia is not going to attack NATO. I mean, that's completely excluded. But I do think that um, you know, before Russia intervened in Ukraine, or before you know there was even a more limited operation in um, in eastern Ukraine, that yes, uh, you probably would see, uh, you, you know, Russian attempts to blame this on the Ukrainians, um, clashes which, you know, Russia would be able at least semi-plausibly to say had been initiated by the, the Ukrainian side. But of course, at the same time, this kind of escalation would uh, would still be, you know, part of the negotiating process. I think, you know, it's worth bringing this out mm -hmm. you know because some of the, the western coverage suggests you know russia invades ukraine then it's all over then you know complete breakdown yeah. four i said four because if somehow three feels like it's already been going on but anyway I, yes well i suppose the cold look if you like <laughs> yes. war was world war three right yeah but we didn't actually go to war with the soviet union of course, but they would, you know, in Vietnam, yes, in Korea, in Africa, in Central America. But we didn't go to war with Moscow, and I think this time we're not going to go to war with Moscow. Well, we've made we've made clear we won't. So um, the point is, even frankly, if there is a war in Ukraine, uh, we're still going to be talking to the Russians. Um, mm. You know. Uh, the negotiations will continue on a new basis. I mean, mm -hmm. I pray to God there won't be a war in Ukraine and, and Russia doesn't you know, invade. But I think, you know, I find a bit of this Western coverage, frankly, as a Westerner, a little bit humiliating um, because there's all this blowhard stuff. And yet at the same time, as I say, we've made absolutely clear that we're not going to fight. So, yeah. you know, there's a lot of self-flattering, self-regarding, prancing and preening about all this. Yes. And as someone who's on the left, there's also a lot of, well, of course the U.S. is going to invade because we invade everywhere. And we and I'm like, yeah, no, no, I get it. Like we do invade everywhere and it is always BS. Um, but this does feel different. And the United States also has long swapped our hot wars for our more, you know, drone heavy wars, if you will. But I mean, at the same time, I mean, I think one thing we need to recognize is this is God's gift to the U.S. Army, uh, mm. because after, um, you know, pulling out of Afghanistan, uh, the army was really lacking a role. 
Uh, nobody is talking about fighting China on land. So all the money is going to the Navy and Air Force. Now, yes. if you can, you know, create, well, not create, but blow up this Russian threat, in a way, it's ideal, because that suggests you need lots and lots and lots of tanks, lots and lots and lots of artillery. Uh, but of course, at the same time, uh, you're never going to have to use them, you know, so you're not actually going to fight or or, or risk, you know, God forbid, nuclear catastrophe. So what, what you get out of this is is what I have to say, I think a lot of the generals are really about, which is bigger budgets. And actually, hey, funny you say that this week, Biden announced that he is going to be asking for $770 billion for the next fiscal year for the defense budget. Um and again, tons of F-35s. This is, by the way, like bigger than what he had asked for last year, bigger than even what Trump had asked for. Um, so you are right on the money, literally, when it comes to what this is all about. And yeah, this is this is maybe for the eventual war with China. But But here we are now. I am just curious about what's in it for Russia. Um, I think you have played out in a couple of the things you've written. Um, an in, a Russian invasion, a couple thousand uh, lives lost, which would be terrible on the Ukrainian side, maybe the Russian side, and then kind of they get their yayas out and they go home. But what, what, what is Russia doing this for? Is it for a better negotiating position, or is it just to kind of like muscle up and show that they have and want a regional sphere of influence? Well, I, I think it's both. But I think the first thing to say is, look, isn't it a little bit unfair to expect Russia to be less paranoid than the United States? I mean, there was a piece in the Wall Street Journal the other day uh, about China's um, negotiations with Equatorial Guinea in Central <laughs> Africa, about a possible <laughs> Chinese base there. And right. the Wall Street Journal said that this America must oppose this by all means because Equatorial Guinea... Uh, is in America's backyard. Uh, America's backyard, it seems, extends 6,500 miles from the United States. So, you know, if, uh, and, you know, it's called the Monroe Doctrine. I mean, we know how ruthlessly America will act to exclude any hostile military alliance from yeah. uh, Central America and the Caribbean. Now, America has had to accept qualifications to that, Cuba, Venezuela, just as Russia has had to accept, um, you know, NATO membership for the Baltic states. But as with America, there, there is a final red line which America will not tolerate, you know, close to its borders. Yeah. Well, Russia is just the same. I mean, it's, this isn't just Putin. The Russian establishment regards the idea of Ukraine being part of a, an, an anti-Russian alliance with absolute abhorrence. And in the end, uh, is prepared to run, I think, to, to, to run tremendous risks and accept tremendous costs in order to prevent that. But I think... You know, it, at the same time, they don't want to run those risks or costs if they can avoid it. So they're still sure. using the threat of war uh, to try to get the the West to to back off, at least to right. some to not to not allow NATO. Excuse me, to not allow Ukraine into NATO, which I know you've said is not actually going to happen. Um, and or um, just get, let's say, the anti-missile defense systems that NATO constantly points at Russia um, to maybe turn those around, <laughs> just spin them around. That's all they want. Um, but yeah, I guess I guess in terms of I understand the whataboutism in term in terms of the United States asking that Russia not do this when we do the exact same thing uh, in our hemisphere, in our sphere. But but what does 
Russia actually want here? Are they and what could they get? Because I know that some of the diplomacy is not that there's not that much daylight in between where we could be and how this could all be solved diplomatically. Could you break some of that down? I think what the Russian establishment hopes is to convince the Ukrainians that they never will, in fact, join the West in the sense of joining NATO and the European Union. Um, And probably, by the way, that is actually true. Um, But of course, for Ukraine, it's become, or the Ukrainian establishment, it's become a tremendous symbolic thing. And to give that up would, from their point of view, involve surrendering, you know, a measure of Ukrainian sovereignty. Uh, but I think that the Russians feel that if if you can really, you know, get, get the West to acknowledge publicly that this isn't going to happen, uh, or of perhaps, perhaps the Russians would accept a moratorium. In other words, you know, the West says we'll accept that for the next 20 years, Ukraine isn't going to be in NATO. Then the Russians hope uh, that over time, the Ukrainians will somehow come back to the, the, the idea, well, we've got to have a decent relationship with Russia. Now, mm. this, this doesn't mean, um, you know, annexing the whole of Ukraine, uh, or I think, um, actually, even bringing Ukraine into a formal alliance with Russia, because they've realized uh, since 2014, that trying to do that is going to create a revolution in Ukraine. But basically, just to keep open the possibility of a you know friendly non hostile ukraine with russia uh, which by the way from a russian point of view will also secure the role of the russian language in ukraine you know there's a 20% mm. ethnic russian minority in ukraine and so will yeah i mean in a certain sense preserve a, a limited russian sphere of influence but this is you know this is a sphere of influence you know, a little bit like the Monroe Doctrine. It's not trying to recreate the Soviet Union. I mean, Putin once said himself, uh, he admitted, you know, he's a Soviet nostalgist. So are not just a great many Russians, but a great many people throughout the former Soviet Union. Um, but, but he said, anyone who does not regret the fall of the Soviet Union has no heart. But anyone who thinks it can be recreated has no brain. Putin actually <laughs> said that, which I, I think pretty much says it all, really. So regime change in Kiev, you don't see as necessarily the goal? I don't see how they could do that unless they can. They actually go to occupy Kiev. Now, I could be wrong. You know, I don't have a, a an implant in Putin's head. But I don't, I mean, from the, the Russian, members of the Russian establishment I've talked to, I think they realize that they couldn't do that because they would face massive protests on the streets. In, right. in Kiev and Western Ukraine, they'd end up having to shoot large numbers of people, you know, the way they did in Czechoslovakia in 68 and, and Hungary in 56. I don't think they want to do that. Uh, I think they would probably try to take those bits of Ukraine where they at least hoped, perhaps wrongly, that they could get parts of the local population on their side. They certainly wouldn't achieve that in Kiev. It's just a really weird way of going about trying to bring people to the table. I mean, it's working. Hell, we're all talking about Russia. But it does feel like if they do invade, and like I was saying, I didn't mean to downplay a couple thousand deaths. That'd be awful. Um, But that it would only further entrench NATO's role in the region and NATO, which I, you know... You know, I grew up listening to Chomsky and all Chomsky says is how obsolete it is and pointing to it. And we can see all the ways that NATO backed wars, which are really NATO backed U.S. wars, um, 
have been uh, counterproductive, have created further instability in the last, you know, 30 years, say. And and it really is an obsolete military um, alliance that you can see now doesn't even really have the money or the backing because none of these European states are really committed to it, which they got other things on their mind. You know, it's like Germany's selling a bunch, selling a bunch of helmets or sending a helmets to Ukraine. Like, cool. That's all you got. You know, no one's really willing to stick their necks out. So why are we doing this? We just pulled out of a, you know, 20 year NATO war in Afghanistan. Yeah. Big win there. I mean, you know, Taliban is back in power. So it is funny to me that you're like, NATO's already on its back heels, Russia. Yeah, I feel like you don't need to do this. Look, I, I, I completely agree with you. I think I think the Russians are wrong. I think this is a mistake. I think they would have been much better letting NATO quietly decay. And yeah. indeed, the, the Ukrainians became convinced that the you know there was nothing really to hope for there. Um, I mean, all I can say is two things. One is, you know, as, as I say, um, security establishments are paranoid. Um, you know, God knows we know that from our own uh, experience, right? Um, yes. And uh, But secondly, something I think the West has not paid nearly enough attention to is, is the fact that over the past year or so, the Ukrainian government and parliament have brought in uh, some pretty tough measures, at least on paper, uh, reducing the role of the Russian language in Ukraine. You know, uh, oh. on, in theory, at least, abolishing it in higher education, abolishing it in you know officialdom, uh, banning Russian TV and radio stations, um, even on paper, uh, abolishing it from use in shops. Now, of course, across a large part of the country, this isn't going to happen um, because. The vast majority of the population does speak Russian. Uh, but I think what it's convinced the Russian establishment of, perhaps wrongly, uh, is that if this goes on for another generation, then this, uh, you know, cultural, these cultural bonds between many Ukrainians and many Russians, uh, mm. which Putin talked about in an essay last summer, uh, will in fact be destroyed by Ukrainian state, you know, state policy of ethnic Ukrainian nationalism. And so in a sense, the Russians have to act now to put a to put a stop to that. Um, huh. I have to say, I mean, quite why the West, which everywhere else opposes ethnic nationalism or says it does, somehow seems to endorse it whenever it's anti-Russian is an mm. interesting question. But um, in any case, I think that is an important part of the uh, of the Russian calculations. Now, of course, there too, uh, they're probably completely wrong, because as has been remarked, and quite rightly, all these Russian threats, and of course, the war in the Donbass since um, 2014, have actually turned a lot of Ukrainians, who were previously more or less pro-Russian, uh, into anti-Russians. So, uh, you know, Russian policy uh, could well be said to be failing, and um, an, an invasion would have precisely the opposite effects to what Russia hopes. But, you know, once again, um, if you like, we shouldn't be helping the Russians to make a, a, a disastrous mistake, because yeah. that mistake would be disastrous, not just for them, uh, but it would be disastrous for Ukraine. And of course, the economic consequences would be very bad for us as well. In fact, the only people I think uh, who would be cheering this on would be China. Let them fight. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, God. Oh, we haven't even I mean, on this show, we don't support the uh, anti-China like hawkish bullshit. So well, but, but, but yeah. equally, it's it's a bit strange to see the, the US establishment, which is so trumpeted 
you know, mm. fear of China, uh, now conducting policies which you th- almost think could have been designed in Beijing. <laughs> like, yes, they've fallen into our trap. Wouldn't have been the first time. Um, I did want to ask you about sort of the economic ties to Russia, because, you know, obviously here in the United States, we are not as dependent on Russian, let's say, oil and gas as Europe is. And so it is almost more absurd to think about, you know, rallying NATO against Russia when Germany, for example, relies on, and you've written about this, that's how I know it, uh, Germany relies on uh, gas from Russia and gas exports. So, like, just talk about that, like, sort of bizarre, the economics at play here, and also maybe what sanctions, you know, we're talking in the United States Congress of the mother of all sanctions on Russia. What does that mean? Well, you know, just as NATO uh, is prepared to fight Russia physically to the very last Ukrainian, uh, so the United States is prepared to fight Russia economically down to the very last German. Um, you know, uh, it's not going to be the, the US, at least in the first instance, which suffers, which is, of right. course, why many of the Europeans are a lot more hesitant about this, because they are dependent on Russian energy supplies in a way that the United States is not. But I think, you know, Americans need to be reminded as well that Russia doesn't just export energy. It also exports huge amounts of commodities. It is the biggest food exporter in the world. Now, if US-led sanctions make it much more difficult to pay for Russian exports, this could have an effect on global inflation. Uh, which will come back to bite um, ordinary American consumers. But also, of course, a a steep increase in world food prices will have a radically destabilizing effect on many countries around the world, including U.S. allies. So, you know, this is something that America needs to worry about. Now, from another point of view, um, you know, as you kindly mentioned, I've just written a book about climate change. Uh, Of course, from the point of view of the struggle against climate change, all this is a disaster, or or would be if it happens, it will force um, the Europeans back on coal, which, of course, is the most disastrous of all the fossil fuels. Uh, It will um, make them more dependent on uh, oil and gas exports from the United States, including, of course, Canada's tar sands, sands, the most polluting of all. Um, And the whole effort against climate change will, I think, take a, a, a terrible blow. So that's the first thing to say. But the second thing is... As I've said again and again, does anyone really think that historians 150 years from now, if there are any, are going to think that the question of Ukrainian NATO membership was the biggest threat facing humanity? (laughs) (laughs) I really... Yeah, I mean, I, I I really think they will look back on us with, you know, as as I've often said, the same combination of just contempt and bewilderment with which mm-hmm. we look on the, the European elites before 1914. You know, how could these people be so have been so stupid, yeah. you know, as to neglect the the common threat to everybody for the sake of these, you know, symbolic posturing, preening, you know, geopolitical theatrics. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I'm thinking of if we invested even half of the $770 billion in supporting, you know, like you could, it could still be foreign policy, but it would be, you know, helping green energy and helping solar and wind farms and, and, you know, like build up in you shit Ukraine, if even if you want, which actually I think Russia would really hate if we help them build up um, green energy. Um, 
so we wouldn't have to necessarily go that far, but it is interesting. You're like, if we actually were all not susceptible to the fossil fuel war and game, and that was not a factor in this, um, and nor were, was the military industrial complex. I just want to, I'm just, I'm just dreaming in it all. Just painting a very fluffy little picture um, like Bob Ross, but for foreign policy. <laughs> Well, I suppose we could all support what somebody or other called a foreign policy for the middle classes. Um, uh, the President Biden, uh, Anthony Blinken, a year ago, they were all talking about this. We haven't heard much of that recently, have we? You know, a foreign policy that would actually serve the interests of ordinary Americans. And, you know, how on earth does present Western policy towards Russia do that? No, it's and also it's so unpopular, like all of this posturing on the ground is so unpopular. I mean, that it's funny. I'm reminded of like the, I did a, I went to the RNC in 2016 and, you know, obviously Trump sort of, you know, wiped the floor with all these other, well, he was already crowned actually the, the candidate of the Republicans. And I remember asking, I was doing some dumb piece where I was like, Hey, say something positive about, you know, Trump. And I was at, I was asking Democrats this and they, he was like, uh, like the first, Basically, the first Republican to say that war is stupid and we shouldn't keep going on. Now, that doesn't mean that Trump is not a like, like fear mongering, like bloodthirsty hawk. Yes, he expanded drone strikes by 400 percent. I constantly remind people of this um, and that like isolationism doesn't mean that you don't want to invade. It just means when you invade, you want to take everything. Um, but it is interesting that like he did tap into both a Republican and Democrat desire a general desire to just stop the war machine, to just like wind it down a little bit. Um, the problem is, and I think, I think Obama ran into that, you know, it's like every time in American empire, you start to, you try to sort of massage or hold handhold like the American public and media into understanding, Hey guys, it's not your world anymore. It's a we got to share the world. Then they, we all freak out, you know, and we all just want to sort of lash out. I've realized I've gotten off the scent of this interview, but um, that's... Uh, I, think that's I, I think that's, you know, pretty much at the core of it, actually. You know, why so much of the, the US response uh, has yeah. been so so irrational? And, you know, we could talk about the specific European attitudes as well. But I, I think that's absolutely right. Um, you know, we've got ourselves trapped into a political culture uh, yes. Where, whereby, you know, compromise with with rival countries has somehow, as far as the Washington establishment is concerned, become inherently, you know, bad and illegitimate. And and then, of course, you know, and, and by the way, I blame the Re Democrats for this as well as the Republicans. But, you know, whichever party is in is in opposition, you, you know, screams about the alleged weakness or treachery yes. of the um, uh, of the government in power, which just makes it, you know, it was that which got America into Vietnam as much as anything else. If you read, you know, um, the, the recordings of Johnson's uh, conversations, he knew this was going to be a disaster, but he was terrified of what the Republicans would do to, to, to him domestically if he didn't support the South Vietnamese. And we know what yeah. came from that one. Well, and here we're off of, you know, a, yes, I mean, like an objectively ugly withdrawal from Afghanistan. And I would argue there was no way to do it, you know, uh, beautifully. It was a disgusting and awful occupation and war for 20 years. But that is very much coloring how they are, they're approaching Ukraine and the United States is approaching Ukraine. Um, before we wrap, 
best case scenario for getting out of this situation currently and diplomatically the best case scenario? Best case, I think, would be moratorium on NATO membership for Ukraine. Say, look, let's shelve this for the moment while we try to work out all these things with Russia. One, um, return to the conventional forces in Europe agreement, which after all, we all signed in the 90s. And then both sides, it has to be said, you know, violated in different ways. But, you know, we could commit ourselves to returning to that in principle. Now that the dangers of not doing so are so clear, Mm -hmm. um, try to uh, negotiate a new a ban on intermediate short-range nuclear forces in Europe. And one thing I think is very important, since the end of the Cold War, the United States has really set out in many ways to, to destroy the United Nations as a you know as an international mediating force. Yes. <laughs> you know, now the UN is the one place, the only place which does have a, a measure of you know universal international global legitimacy. Um, And of course, all of us are represented there, the Russians, the Chinese, as well as the West. Let's try to use the United Nations to solve some of these conflicts that are going on around the fringes of Europe on the basis of common standards. The Russians would have to give up something, for example, in Kosovo. We would have to recognize realities, and by the way, local democratic realities in various parts of the former Soviet Union. So I think, you know, there is the possibility still of a of a diplomatic solution to all this. And the Donbass, you know, autonomy within Ukraine, it's the only way. That's what we would be supporting in any other conflict of this kind. Mm. Donbass autonomy, I don't really know what that means. Can you explain before I let you go? Yeah, Uh, guaranteed autonomy for the Donbass within Ukraine, under Ukrainian sovereignty, with an international peacekeeping force responsible for security. I mean, it's the only way that conflict can be solved. Because it it is a heavily Russian... Uh, sort of, or ethnically Russian region of Ukraine? Yeah, exactly. And uh, I mean, it's very difficult to say now what people really want, but certainly until the 2014 and the Ukrainian revolution, you know, I was in the Donbass and the overwhelming majority of the population wanted local autonomy. Um, They didn't necessarily oppose being in Ukraine, but they hated Ukrainian ethnic nationalism. Yeah. Uh, uh, very understandable local cultural reasons. So I think, you know, this is, once again, this is a reasonable, objective solution. This is what we would be supporting anywhere else in the world. And if we're not really supporting it in the case of the Donbass, um, you know, frankly, it's about anti-Russian geopolitical c- considerations and, and sheer prejudice. Yeah. And as you said, the only place will be like, yeah, we love ethno-nationalism if it serves somehow backwards our interests, Um, as well as the United States. We're really good at some of that ethno-nationalism, even though we say we're not. Anatole Levin, thank you so much for joining me. Everybody, uh, check out his books, uh, Climate Change and the Nation State and Ukraine and Russia, Fraternal Rivalry, which I feel like we all need to brush up on uh, now. Um, Or you can just listen to this and read Anatole's writings on Quincy Institute. We love Quincy Institute. Um, We had Trita Parsi on to talk about Iran. So um, thank you so much. I hope you come back in the future. I'd love to. All right. Awesome. Take good care. And here I am back again. This is the now me. That was the then me still here with Corinda Dobbins. What's up, Corinda? Hey. Were you taking notes? I was. I mean, I learned. So I probably learned more from that interview about the Ukraine than I learned in the last two weeks on any news station I've been watching. 
I know. I was just like, somebody start from step one. Is I was there like, be okay, a what, what, what are you guys talking about again? Uh, yeah. Because no, nobody ever starts from the beginning. They just kind of jump in some middle hole and just they're go like from war. There. And we're like, what happened before that, though? Uh, and they're like, we don't exactly. want to talk about it. <laughs> no, not at all. It is. It's also really funny because. And, and this is a really interesting juxtaposition, but the way that the media talks about politics is from the most like distance bird's eye, like sort of um, cold calculating way as it, like, like they talk about the dog and pony show only rather than talking about like the real impact on humans. And I and I kind of wish they were and they're a little bit what I'm saying is I wish they were a little bit like that with the war talk, meaning they're always jumping to the to the war, like, let's go to war. We're in it. We're already there. Let's talk to the generals and look at all the, th- you know, the tanks. And the- rather than being like, whoa, 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 what is in this for Putin? What is in this for Ukraine? <laughs> let's talk about it. Like from that more distance, even keeled, you know, like uh, approach. I feel like every time we get ready to get into one of these uh, conflicts, the news is sort of always driven by American interests, right? Like what, and those interests are always what corporate, <laughs> usually. Yeah. Uh, there's they're never the, when these they say American, have to get yeah used. when they when they say American interests, they're not talking about you and me, <laughs> uh, and how our lives may or may not be uh, impacted. That's never a concern. Well, listen to um, what he's saying too about like how fucking scary is it to know that if Europe cannot be dependent on Russia for oil and gas, and going back to obviously. Coal. We're going one, we're going back to coal. And two, it's like, oh, it's game on for every tar sands oil pipeline, you know, under the sun uh, to ship all of our oil over there. Right. And like we constantly are talking about energy independence, energy. Fucking energy independence is was relevant 50 years ago. Like, let's talk about how to survive. How about that? How about like like green energy, alternative, sustainable energy? Anywho, um, but that's never we, a concern of ours when we go into we're if people in Europe are going to have to suffer and go back into, you know, unclean oh. energy sources like we don't care about that. That's not, that's not something we're thinking about at all. No. All right. Well, we do have one more segment left. Uh, this is our final fun segment. You guys, you got to stick around. There's actually two more segments left. If you are lucky enough and sweet and generous enough to be a patron, because Corinne and I are breaking down Ram Ranch resistance, the best thing to come out of the Ottawa truckers protest um, at all. <laughs> uh, in addition to us realizing that Ottawa truckers are actually not represented by that protest. But um, but first, there's a lot of drama in the skies, guys. Uh, I don't know if you knew this, but in 2021, there were something like 5,981 reported unruly passengers. Um, many of them, like dozens of them, have been referred even to federal authorities for prosecution. Um, there have already been 400 incidents mid-flight this year. A number of uh, pilots have been like, I am turning this flight goddamn around. And they did because people were acting. People forgot how to act. Let's just realize all the Karen stuff, all the in-flight Karen stuff. People forgot how to act. Maybe it's just white people who forgot how to act. But <laughs> we're talking about a lot of a lot of things going down on flights that make tampering with the smoke detector in the laboratory look very good. Like flight attendants are like, oh, my God, fuck, 
fuck with the laboratory smoke detector, please. Let me just get out of my hair, stop screaming, put on your mask, and if you want to go mess with the laboratory detector, do it. <laughs> but we're talking about a no-fly list because Delta Airlines is apparently asking the FAA to create a no-fly list, not for so-called terrorists, but for people who cause disturbances mid-flight, like we've seen. Um, Republicans are obviously saying no because that would equate someone who shits on a drink cart with, you know, a terrorist. And that's not fair because that person who shit on a drink cart is white and <laughs> Christian. Uh, but let's talk about it. Should these people be banned? Should there be a no fly list? This is no fly or let it fly. Corinda, you fly a lot. I do. Um, I'm sure you have a lot of pet peeves. I'm sure you have uh, have a lot of preferences. Can I just ask, have you ever seen or been involved in uh, mid-air rage? I have not seen it personally, no. Thank nice. God. Nice. I had a Southwest flight attendant basically allude to the fact that a Southwest uh, flight attendant had like duct tape a passenger to their chair and was like, all right, guys, he got on the he got on the intercom and was like, nobody act up now. And he like just staring us all down. And we were like, we know we don't want to get <laughs> duct taped to the there. It was very fun. But my question is, what do you do with these passengers? Do we create a no fly list? Now, granted, the no fly list is not forever. It's just a timeout. Right. It's a timeout. Absolutely. So I think absolutely you create a no fly list. And I think it's very interesting that Republicans are like, uh, we don't want the government uh, getting involved in this because they're the law and order party, right? right. Follow the rules. But whenever it's, the rules. whenever they think it's people who support them, they're like, well, this is about freedom. Uh, <laughs> and this is about freedom to slap a flight attendant if they're not happy. And uh, you shouldn't put them on the list if they want to do that. George uh, Washington slapped a flight attendant when he founded the nation. A lot of people yeah, don't talk so- about that. I think they're because the the pilots union and also the flight attendant union are saying, look, this is not about mass. This is about people uh, slapping us, spitting on us, sexually assaulting us. And you should be uh, for our safety, uh, Mm -hmm. no matter what. It's it's not a partisan thing. Uh, So absolutely. I, I think that, you know, depending on the severity of the incident, you know, you should have a longer and longer time where you can't fly. I mean, if you, do something uh, that's minor or major or, you know, the consequences should be commiserate with that. Sure. All right. Well, let's go through some. Um, These are some real examples and some not real examples. Actually, they're all real examples. Um, No fly or let it fly. Corinda, uh, not wearing a mask after being repeatedly told. No fly. No fly. Got it. How how many months? That's like a, that's like a two month. Two month. No fly. Okay. Okay, that's good. Uh, biting a flight attendant. Biting a flight attendant? Yes, it's happened. That's like six to nine months. You need to you need to get your life together. Go see a therapist. <laughs> okay, cool. Nine months of therapy. Um, do you give them a voucher for therapy? Will Delta provide a voucher? No, I'm not paying for your therapy for biting my flight attendant. Okay. I'm sure you you have good insurance. I got it. Got if it, got if it. you're biting a flight attendant, your teeth are probably very straight. So you had 
you have, you have dental too. That's exactly right. That's true. Um, meanwhile, they're punishing us for all this behavior, taking away our cocktails. I'm serious about this. Like I do need a vodka tomato juice. Yes, it's gross, but it's the closest thing I, that I will get to a Bloody Mary. And it helps me during the, the turbulence. Okay. But instead they're punishing the whole class. They're yeah. punishing the class instead of getting rid of the bully. Okay, let's keep going. Uh, breaking out a fish meal from home on a packed flight. No fly or let it fly? I'll say uh, let it fly. Yeah, it's going to it's gonna be stinky, but, you know, you don't want to pay. You also don't want to pay $20 for a cold chicken sandwich either. That's true. <laughs> so I'm going exactly. to let that fly. Every time I see someone with, like, a full meal, I'm like, 30% mad and 70% like, I should have done that. <laughs> you know, like, like, Let me I'm tell you, the la- I'm in, I'm in, uh, the last time I was in Detroit and, uh, I brought back like a corned beef from a oh, place that no. I really love, like mid flight. Was I the person bro- next to you just like, <sighs> I broke it open literally three, three rows in front of me and three rows behind me. They were all like, what is that smell? <laughs> like, they were all like, how you dare just- you bring delicious corned beef and we're eating cold tuna sandwiches man i was i was back from a, a like a boston flight back back west and there was a guy next to me with a fucking buttery lobster roll and i was just oh like my. oh he was right next to me i was staring at him and uh, and i felt like the right thing to do was to give me a piece i felt yeah. like that was the right thing to do yeah. this was if, pre-covid if, if anybody in my row had asked me you know i would have i would have broke them off a little a little piece you know fight, fight they, over like goals you just, know they yeah. didn't they didn't ask me i think the angry black lady thing kicked in and they didn't even <laughs> dare to ask which in that case it worked to my uh benefit actually <laughs> okay cool we're letting that fly how about trying to open a plane door mid-flight? This actually happened. In order to subdue the gentleman, a flight attendant hit him on the head with a <laughs> coffee pot. I feel like that should be like a five-year ban. Like, you shouldn't be allowed to fly for five years. And even then, we need to, like, have some doctor tell us about yeah. your competence because you can yeah. kill people. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Trying to open the plane door was wrong with you. Um, how about this? Watching a movie on your phone without headphones. Oh, I hate that. <laughs> Absolutely <laughs> hate that. I feel like I'll let it fly, but I'm gonna meme mug you that whole flight. Yes. <laughs> like I'm gonna give you some crazy stink eye. Just <laughs> in my book, they have five minutes to fix it. Like five minutes to realize their AirPods aren't working, the shit's not plugged in. They're old and I'll, and then I'm going to be like, tap, tap, tap. Like I'm going to do something, you know? Yeah. yeah. I fucking hate that. Um, Okay. Is that that worse than a crying baby? Yes. A crying baby. I am. Here's the thing. It depends on the parent. I always find kids annoying on more annoying on planes when their parents suck. Their parents don't know how to deal with them. And that just, those parents are usually what? Are you going to make this about race? <laughs> I mean, of course, they're always white. Like, always, 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 always. Because people um, of color, we can't let our kids run them up. Like, we just can't. There's a different consequence, right? So. The, like, the, the parent is trying to actually open the plane door to throw the kid out of it. And they're like, well, we're all in agreement on this one. No. Like, hey, if that's what you want to do. 
No, exactly. It's no, you're right. You're right. It's it's always a parent who doesn't know actually how to calm their kid down and who gets more anxious. And I get it. I'm sure it sucks to fly with a, a kid and a baby like but I, yeah, give them some beer. You know what I mean? Give them I, a little scoopy scoop. Just a little like sip. If you don't know how to stop your baby from crying, maybe you should be flying. I think maybe there should be some kind of test. Like there'll be mm. some, some room before you, you get you on the flight. It? <laughs> it's so true. I know. I, I I like, you know, babies are cute and all. And I'm trying to be empathetic, but you're totally right. Um, what about throwing trash at a flight attendant? This happened. <laughs> that's like a one year. That's like a one year ban. One year. Okay. 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 Um, right. So biting less, not as bad as biting. Biting was nine months in therapy. This is one year. Mm-hmm. Uh, ringing the call button to ask for a drink before you're even in the air. Come on. This is not first class. I say three weeks. That's it. <laughs> it's, it's just, it. this, this flight doesn't revolve around you. Oh, you're thirsty. We're all fucking thirsty. <laughs> I'm thirsty too. That's why I bring a water bottle like an adult. That's annoying. Um, I just don't like when you're like, I'm thirsty before others. Like, in what world? <laughs> in what world? Um, okay, how about muttering that you're going to beat up the family behind you that is seated behind you? This actually happened. A gentleman who uh, was zip-tied and saran-wrapped to his seat was muttering that he was going to beat up a, like a child and a parent behind him. I feel like that's like three years. You're, okay. you're, you're, uh, but he didn't hit, he didn't touch him. He didn't touch him. But I feel like if you say that, you, you are willing to. Mm, right. Totally. It's, it's, it's kind of like you didn't, but you said out loud that you would. So, right. It was a threat. I feel like it was a threat. You can't threaten people on a plane. Yeah. Um, and finally, taking up both armrests. When you're not in the middle seat, because that's only a privilege for the middle seaters. I feel like I, I, I'll let you fly, but I'm also like my elbows are deadly. So if you're <laughs> if you are attempting any kind of shenanigans, like I have the full force of like the angles, like I will <laughs> jab you and it will hurt. It really hurt. You can't I- come back. For- I'm always so polite. I do not jab. I like lightly brush. Like, oops, oops. Well, the first couple of times, I'll brush. Yeah. But like the fifth or sixth time, you're getting a jab. And it's going to be a very (laughs) pointed jab. Yeah, because usually you're in the middle and you're like, this fucking sucks. You're being rude. And there's no need for that. There is no need. Um, But there is a need to wrap this amazing show. Um, Karina Dobbins, thank you so much for joining me. Um, Where can everybody find your work and follow you? Uh, you can follow me at CorindaDobbins.com. I'm not one of those comics who like comes up with like catchy names on every social platform. So it's just my name everywhere. So Instagram, Facebook, uh, Twitter, my website. Very everything. simple. It's not CorindaDobbins at gmail.com. Yes. <laughs> How did I know? <laughs> and of course, everybody buy Black and Blue. Corinda Dobbins is um, stand up. Yeah. Go get uh, that. Yeah. Put it on rotation or whatever, you know, 
the, the stand-up album, that's the word, album, it came to me. Buy it from, if y'all can support Blonde Medicine, which is a, an independent comedy label, which is the best, it's, run it's by dear friends. It's a fantastic label, Dominic and Jessica and everybody over there. It's just yes. phenomenal. Shout out to them. We love them. And yeah. Corinda, I'll see you in the bonus episode. Thank you so much for yes. being here. And thank you guys for being here. Um, I really appreciate your comments and also dealing with some tech difficulties. Sticking around for this extra long episode. Reading some of your comments here. Once Upon on YouTube says, Boeing is a part of the military industrial complex. Ding, ding, ding. Schultze 100, what's up? Uh, says, Boeing... Boeing's fuck up is huge. I can look out my window and see the roof of the Everett plant where another 10,000 more people this year are about to lose their jobs. It's awful. I mean, Boeing again is, this is a company that sort of also uh, threatens and browbeats and, and forces states to compete to give them the most tax breaks so that they'll move a plant into that state. And then, yeah, they lay, they lay off workers with no repercussions. Um, Alex Samaras on YouTube says, who the fuck is Sandy Cortez, right? Like, bro, just call her representative AOC before you say that you want her to booty call you. Uh, Zena, the Egyptian dragon says on YouTube says, honestly, Tucker, just call her a witch and move on. We all know he's living in the 18th century. 100%. Future in doubt on Twitch. Tucker makes it really hard to be a peaceful leftist. Agreed. Zero PE on YouTube. What is a Jackson hole? I feel like that's something only rich people know. Shh, don't spoil it. Todd Roy says, from one war to into another, military weapon suppliers are salivating. Obviously about Ukraine. Thank you so much, Michael Gallegos, for your super sticker. Um, Hef says, NATO Green is not obsolete. No, he's not, ever. Ever, ever. And NATO's getting hella alerts on his Google right now. Because, like, he's got a Google alert on his name. And so now it's like, bing, bing, bing. Poor guy. Um, someone write an article about NATO Green. The real, the best NATO. Um, Once Upon on YouTube says, there isn't any difference between the economics and war. We have to start thinking of war for what is a way for certain people to make bank and enforce dollars. Enforce dollars. I like that. And Adam Hodges says, Anatole is speaking brutal facts. Most will ignore or fall into the quick cul-de-sac. How do we make progress, all of us? I mean, take the streets. That's what I got. That's mostly what I do whenever there's a war on the horizon. Um, but this one is, it's difficult. It's hard to know. I think not buying into the Russian propaganda is good. Um Incredible Stan on Twitch says, Cucker Charlson, thank you for reminding me how to pr protect, pronounce, excuse me, his name. On Child Poverty, um, Roll File, R-O-F-L, Iron Drag, Iron Chef, sorry. <laughs> but seriously, the solution to child poverty is clearly to let the children get jobs. How else will they ever pull themselves up by their little Velcro straps? Oh, it's adorable. Send them to the coal mines. On the Sitch, um, 5i5 on Twitch says the military industrial complex needs a new enemy after the Afghanistan pullout. Ding, ding, ding. And Dank Farrick Mom on Twitch says military contractors, peace is our job. War is our hobby. <laughs> They're so adorable. And thank you, Vince Morales, for that super chat. That's so, so, so sweet of you. You guys, if you want to tip this show, you can also do that on Venmo and Cash App. TBR-Live on Venmo. TBR-Live on Cash App. And with that, let us do the ceremonial thanks to everyone who has become a patron, who's tipped, who has become a subscriber on Twitch. This is the fart song, y'all. Yeah. Okay, let's see if we can play this fart song. 
Yeah, yeah. Okay, everyone can hear. Thank you to the new patrons at 10 bucks or more. Gail R., uh, thank you for upping your pledge to 20. That's so generous of you. John Reed, welcome. Welcome to your Chata Armada. Your welcome package will be in the mail. Uh, thank you, uh, Penelope Albright, and also... Penelope, you got that long part. The Big Tippers, Joseph L., as always, appreciate you. Twitch subs, Aussie Plant Dragon, Sir Chessie, Pagan Communist, Dina Boyer, Lumping Space, Ash Love, Sin Dragon, and Land Junkie, who gave out one sub. Thank you again to the Super Chats, Adam Hodges, Michael Gallegos, and Vince Morales. Thank you to everyone who's written a review for this podcast. I read them all. They're incredibly sweet. And of course, to the people that work on the show, Paige Omek, Maximilian Inhoff, and Alexander Orness. We stream every Sunday, 5, 8 Eastern on YouTube and Twitch. Follow the show at Bituation Pod on Twitter or at Franny Fio on TikTok and you and uh, Instagram, which are is my handle. And uh, remember, y'all. Fight the power. Fuck the patriarchy. Get your tickets to March 10th in Brooklyn. And I'll see you in the bonus show. And don't just bitch about it. Be about it. Later. <laughs>